All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. If you were here last week and this week, you know the microphone does not like me. Um, (laughs) This is all right. I won't take it personal. Um, But turn your Bibles to Genesis 35. Um, This morning, we will look at verses 1 through 15. I'm going to go ahead and read our passage first and then pray. So once you get there, I'll pick up and read verse 1 of chapter 35. So reading verse 1 down to 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, or to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah Rebekah's nurse died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning because we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. We are grateful that the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts and opened our eyes to the truth. Apart from you, we are weak, but you, O God, are our strength. Apart from you, we are helpless, but you, O God, are our help. Apart from you, we are wicked, but you, O God, are our righteousness. Apart from you, we would continue on this path which leads to destruction yet you guide us and keep us on the narrow path. So I pray this morning you would guide us in the paths of righteousness, 
give us strength to fight and resist the temptation to sin. Help us to follow you and not the way of this world. Strengthen us, O God, because we are weak. We're quick to wander away, but you, O God, can keep us and make us stay. So help us to see the glory of Christ. Open our eyes to wondrous things that are in your word. Speak to us through your word and stir up within us a hunger and a thirst for you, for your truth, for your righteousness. So help us, O God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a while since we've talked about the structure of the book of Genesis. Um, But if you've been with us during the course of this study, then you'll recall that the book of Genesis is divided into sections using the phrase, these are the generations of. Currently, we're in the generations of Isaac. The section began back in chapter 25, verse 19, and it runs through the end of chapter 35. And while this section is labeled the generations of Isaac, This section is actually more concerned with Jacob than it is with Isaac. So you might be wondering, why is the section not called the generations of Jacob? Well, that will come um, in chapter 37, verse 2. We'll have the generations of Jacob, but even there, that section won't be concerned so much with Jacob as much as with his sons, namely Joseph. You see, with the exception of Noah, each section that bears the name of a particular man is more concerned with his offspring than with the man himself. And even with Noah, that section will conclude with God recommissioning him and his sons to be fruitful and to multiply. And so even there, it's a a sense of which offspring is the focus. And as we see in the book of Genesis, offspring is a primary focus of this book. And so with the generations of Terah, for instance, you might be wondering, who's that? Who's Terah? Well, Terah is Abraham's dad, but Abraham was the primary focus of that section, God's dealings with him. And then now, as we're looking at the generations of Isaac, this section's primarily concerned with his son, Jacob. So one of the primary emphases of the book of Genesis is offspring. The structure of the book teaches this, and so do the contents. If you remember Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent there will be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. This is the plural offspring. There will be enmity. And the same verse speaks of the singular offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. After that pronouncement, the, the narrative keys in on the hostility between the offspring of the serpent, Cain, and the offspring of the woman, Abel. And as we learn from 1 John, Cain was of the evil one, and what did he do? He murdered his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. After this, we see the birth of Seth, followed by a genealogy of his offspring that concludes with Noah. And then as we see with Noah, God enters into a covenant with Noah and with his offspring. In Genesis 6, God tells Noah, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. 
The focus of offspring doesn't end there. For we'll see God call Abraham from among the nations. He establishes a covenant with Abraham and promises to bless Abraham and his offspring after him. The promise of being a multitude of people and inheriting the land is given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, but these promises do not culminate with them. In fact, these promises were made to their offspring. So if you're new to our Genesis study, you might be wondering, why the emphasis on offspring? Why is this important? Well, here's why. Galatians 3.16 teaches us that the covenant promises made to the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Isaac, and the offspring of Jacob find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. God made a covenant with Israel to bring forth the promised offspring who would be born of Abraham's seed, according to the flesh. This one would bless all the nations of the earth. And the book of Genesis, as we see, as we think, so, so span out a little bit and think about the overall structure, we have the first 11 chapters um, really dealing more with, with the nations as a whole. And then chapter 12 narrows down to the, nation, to the nation of Israel, the nation that comes forth from Abraham. And ultimately, it's pointing to this nation and their offspring who will bless the nations of the earth. But as we think about them, as we think about the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Isaac, the offspring of Jacob, last week we had a pretty clear picture that their offspring did not bring blessing to the nations. In fact, they brought curse to the nation of of Shechem, the Shechemites. And so this reminds us that it will be through this nation through one who will be born from this nation according to the flesh that will bring blessing to the nations. And this is extremely important as we read the Old Testament. Because while we have much to learn here, we must remember that the historical narrative throughout the Old Testament is building toward this one offspring, Jesus Christ. The entire historical narrative begs for one, the the descendant, the offspring who will crush the serpent's head. The entire historical narrative is begging for one who will set man free from the curse. The entire historical narrative is begging for one who will come and set the captives free and henceforth bring blessing to the nations. So the focus on offspring in the book of Genesis ultimately points to one offspring, one who is God, yet will be born of man, who will crush the serpent's head and bring blessing to the nations. So bring that to your attention because our passage today reminds us of this truth. In the first 15 verses of chapter 35, we're reminded of God's promises that have been passed down to Jacob and to his offspring after him. So whenever we look at this text and you, and you hear me seeing Jesus here, you shouldn't be shocked because this is what Paul tells us is happening. This is what we see all throughout the scriptures. We see a passage that is more than just a man who goes to Bethel and is blessed by God. This is a passage pointing to Jesus Christ, which all of the scriptures point to him and to his glory. 
So when we read the Old Testament, just a a, a basic interpretive principle, all of it's pointing to Christ. That doesn't mean that every rock or stone we see, well, in some ways Jesus is the rock, but, but every tree leaf we see doesn't mean that that's Jesus found in that. No, but the whole narrative is pointing to him. So when you read your Old Testament, this is a Christian book. And so when we when, when, when I stand here and preach or others preach from the Old Testament, remember, this is a Christian book. Jesus and the apostles, this is what they had, the Old Testament. And then he tells them on the road to Emmaus, the road, the road to Emmaus, he shows them all the things that the prophets, that Moses and the prophets spoke of that pointed to him. So this morning, we'll be reminded of him as we see these blessings, this promise of offspring. So if you have your worship guide on page five, you'll see I've divided this um, passage into two main sections. So in verses one through eight, we'll see Jacob's return to Bethel. Back in chapter 28, Jacob arrived in Bethel on his way out of the promised land. And now we're 20 plus years after that, he arrives back in Bethel. And in verses 9 through 15, we see God's blessings upon Jacob. God blesses Jacob, essentially confirming that the covenant promises that were initially made with Abraham, that those covenant promises have been, have, have been passed down to him. Namely, the promise of land and the promise of offspring. And while the promise of offspring, as I mentioned earlier, as I just mentioned finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus, there's also a sense in which we too belong to Abraham's offspring if we're found in Christ. We too belong to the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if we are found in Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So in Christ, we become heirs of the covenant promises that God made to his people, namely the promise to be his people. So what we'll do here is we're going to walk through this passage, and then I'm going to step back and talk about some of the characteristics that we see of those who belong to the people of God. We'll see in the life of Jacob three um, characteristics here that would define those who belong to the household of God. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and pick up in verse one. So the chapter begins with God speaking to Jacob and he tells Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. So I'll frequently refer back to chapter 28. Um, God appeared there to Jacob in a dream. I won't go there necessarily, but, but that was the first time that, that Jacob went to Bethel. And God appeared to him in a dream and he conveyed upon Jacob the covenant promises that were initially made to Abraham. And then he promised to bring Jacob back safely to the promised land. Jacob wakes up the next day after God appears to him and he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And he names the place Bethel or Beth." the house of God. And now God here in verse one tells Jacob to basically to go back to Bethel, to return there. Well, why? Well, look at the rest of verse one. God tells him to go back there and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. An altar is a place of worship. 
place of sacrifice. And so God is telling Jacob, return to the place where he first appeared to Jacob and make an altar there. And before Jacob left Bethel the first time, he made a vow. He vowed to establish this place as a place of worship. He vowed to give a tenth of everything that he had to God when God brings him back in peace. So Jacob has a vow to fulfill, and God's essentially reminding him of that vow. And so now he will return to Bethel where he can fulfill that vow, build an altar that he might worship God. And so after God tells him to return to Bethel, Jacob, as we see in verse 2, he goes to his, to his household and to all who are with him, because there's a lot of people with him at this point, and he tells them, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Last week in chapter 34, we saw Jacob as the passive father, the passive leader of his household. Doesn't say anything until the end, until all the, 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 what's done was done, and then he finally speaks. Now we see Jacob commanding his family, charging his family to, and, and all who are with him to put away the foreign gods that are among you. There will be no place in his household for partial allegiance. There will be no room for other gods. This might draw to mind Joshua, who many years later will echo the same sentiment. He says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods... Your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's words coming many, many years later, much more precise and clear than what we have in 35 here in Genesis 35. But Jacob essentially expresses the same sentiment. There will be no room for partial allegiance. Jacob is essentially saying, we will serve the Lord God alone in this house. What about you and your household? Is your house full of idols and foreign gods, so to speak? Or is your household a place where God alone is worshipped? If someone comes into your home, someone enters your home, who or what would they think is the primary focus of your worship? Think about that. So back to the text. After telling them to put away the foreign gods, Jacob says in verse 2 at the end of the verse here, purify yourselves and change your garments. As I studied this verse, just reminded that the First Testament, the Old Testament, it's full of types and shadows that signify greater realities. We have here, purify yourselves, change your garments. Well, there's other times where we see similar happenings. For instance, in Exodus 19, the people of God had to consecrate themselves and wash their garments before they could draw near to God. 
the priest, the high priest on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, he had to wash his entire body, signifying purification. Plus he had to change his garments and put on holy garments. So before the people of God could draw near to God, they had to go through external cleansing rites. And that's essentially what we have here. Jacob's household, cleansing themselves before going to Bethel to offer sacrifices to God. But as we learn in the New Testament, merely changing your clothes, washing our bodies, that doesn't make us clean or pure before the Lord. I mean, striking language, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. So a whitewashed tomb looks beautiful on the outside, but then listen to what Jesus says. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You know, in some ways, it's easy for us to fool someone on a Sunday morning and put on an external front. But as we know, we can't fool God. You might look good on the outside. You might say the right things. You might even put on a new t-shirt and clean yourself up. But if your heart is not made new, you're just like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And so while we find these external realities throughout the First Testament, these things signify, this, this cleansing, this purifying, this changing of garments signifies the need for internal cleansing. A common verse we often quote, we'll quote during our, our, our assurance of pardon is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only way we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness is through Jesus Christ, our Lord who takes the sins of the faithful upon himself and credits us with his righteousness. And as we're reminded in the Gospels, Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. Why does he say that? Because the righteous don't need saving. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't come to save the one who says he has no sin, the one who justifies himself every time that he's caught. It was someone else's fault. I have no sin. I mean, that's essentially what you're saying there. Jesus didn't come to save the one who says he has no sin. If that's you, you don't need saving. In fact, if you say you have no sin, then you're saying you are just like Jesus Christ. You're saying you're righteous. And so I bring this to your attention because the external acts of the Old Testament, these external cleansing acts point to our need to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And it's Christ alone who is the means of such cleansing. Jacob here is about to go offer worship to the Lord, offer worship to God, and he knows they must put away their foreign gods and they must purify themselves. They must cleanse themselves. They cannot come out of where they've just been. They've been, I mean, gone through all this wickedness here where where their family has just brought, I mean, 
just brought such destruction upon another people, destroyed another people. They've taken on the Shechemite women and there's gonna be false gods all among them. And Jacob realizes God is holy. We're not going to go before God as we are, unclean people. Now we know that just whatever the purifying rites are, probably the washing and even the changing of the garments, we know that does not make anyone fit for God. But it's what that points to. By the time we get to the New Testament, we find that Christ alone is the one who cleans us. You've been washed. You've been sanctified, justified in Christ alone. Looking back here to Genesis 35, we see Jacob calling his household to, and his whole entourage to break from their radical ways. And then in verse three, he says, let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar there. And notice how he refers to God, to make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. It was God who answered his prayer concerning Esau. Remember, Jacob prayed to God, said, I fear him that he might come in and destroy me and my wives and my children. God answered his prayer. Esau, as we're reminded through chapter 33, Esau's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So Jacob appeals to his family to go up to Bethel and to worship the one true God who answered him in the day of his distress and who has been with him wherever he has gone. And then in verse four, we see their response. They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods, and then they gave the rings that were in their ears. One commentator points out that the earrings might refer to the plunder from the Shechemites, and they might carry pagan representations, or they were rings in the ears of the idols. We really aren't sure about the significance of the earrings here, so Ladies wearing earrings, that is not the point to get rid of them here. Somehow they're, they're related to the foreign gods that Jacob takes and that he, now as we see at the end of verse four, buries under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So Jacob hides these foreign gods from the people and now it's time to return to Bethel. Look at verse five. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Thinking back to chapter 34, Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, they struck down the defenseless sons of Hamor. This troubled Jacob, and rightly so. He was concerned that the peoples of the land might gather together and wipe him out. And while Jacob had every right to be concerned, we're reminded from verse 5, he had no reason to be afraid. Why? because God was with him. God protected him from the surrounding nations. God protected Jacob and his household despite Jacob and his household. And I would say this ought to provide us with encouragement for the same God who was with Jacob tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with his people because he has promised doesn't mean that he will save us necessarily from death. 
Well, he won't save us from death, at least the first death. But nothing will separate us from him. He is with us. And his presence, his blessed presence is not contingent upon our moral goodness or righteousness inherently. His promise of blessing is contingent upon nothing outside of himself. God is faithful to his promises because he is faithful to himself. That ought to encourage you. Because God's not like you. He's not like me. He doesn't change. He doesn't say one thing, say he'll do one thing, and then not do it. He will do all that he says he will do. Therefore, we can trust him. And God called Jacob to go back to Bethel. He's with Jacob on the way to Bethel. And then we see in verse 6, verses 6 and 7, Jacob comes back to Bethel. All the people who are with him, and he built an altar there. He obeyed the voice of the Lord, goes and builds an altar. And right after he builds the altar, we see that he names this place El Bethel. This means the God of Bethel. So God has brought Jacob back here. As I mentioned, Jacob obeyed the voice of the Lord, walking in faithful obedience. And then the next thing we read about in verse 8, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. So Jacob comes back, he builds this altar, and then we read about Rebekah's death. I'm sorry, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, her death. Her name was not mentioned back in chapter 24 when Rebekah came with um, Abraham's servant back to Isaac. But when Rebekah was sent to marry Isaac, she was accompanied by her nurse, most likely Deborah. We don't know. Um, all, all we know about Deborah is what we see here. Um, we don't know who this is except for this was Rebekah's nurse, but she warrants mention in Genesis here. She, her death warrants mention, and her death reminds us of the pains of death because as we see Jacob name this place, Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Death stings for those who are left behind. Next week, we'll see the deaths of Rachel and Isaac. We'll be reminded of that even more. Death hurts because we lose someone. But as we know, for the Christian, there's hope even in death. For Christ has overcome the grave. Therefore, we can say, we sing this song, Christ is our only hope in life and in death. Since God is with us, nothing can separate us from his love, not even death. So this first section here concludes on a somber note. But as we know, death will not have the final say for those who are in Christ. In the words of the late R.C. Sproul, for the believer, death does not have the last word. Death has surrendered to the conquering power of the one who was resurrected as the firstborn of many brethren. So we've seen here in this first section, Jacob returning to Bethel, building an altar there. But before he journeyed to Bethel, we see that he called his household and all who were with him to put away the foreign gods and to purify themselves. And as we're reminded here, this second trip to Bethel is much different than the first. 
The first time he went to Bethel, he was all alone. This time, he's accompanied by a host of people. The first time he went to Bethel, he was on the run from Esau. And we're reminded of that at the end of verse 7. So he went to this place, El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. The first time he went there, he was on the run from Esau. This time, he's seen Esau. He's seen him again, and God delivered him from Esau. The first time Jacob just happened upon Bethel. He wasn't going there in search of Bethel. He just stayed there for the night. This time he intentionally goes back to Bethel to build an altar unto the Lord. The circumstances of this trip are much different than the circumstances of the first trip. First time Jacob was running away from Esau. This time he's coming back knowing that the Lord is with him. And he'll come back and worship the Lord his God. So now that they've arrived in Bethel, built this altar, in the next section we're going to see in verses 9 through 15, God's blessing upon Jacob. In verse 9, we read that God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. So he's coming back. Remember, he, he, was, he went here the first time on his way to Padan Aram. And when he came before and then left before, after God appeared to him, he left with nothing but a promise. He had the promise of God, but nothing else. Now that he's returned to Bethel, he knows that God has been faithful to his promise. God has blessed him with much and he has brought him safely back to the promised land. As such, this blessing that we're going to see, that God appeared to him again and blessed him, this blessing is really just a confirmation of the promises that have already been made. These promises are not new. We see over and over the same promises throughout the book of Genesis, confirming God's faithfulness. He's not given up. He's not done working yet. The promises are still to be fulfilled. And so what we have here, we see in verse 10 that Jacob is named Israel. Well, that already took place in chapter 32, if you remember. Jacob received a new name, Israel, then. But here, that promise, that name is confirmed because Israel means you're one who has striven with God. And so here, God says to him in verse 10, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel because now he's one who strives with God, not one who strives against God. This is a confirmation of who he is. And so Jacob, he's a man of God. He is one who is striving with God, not against him. And then we see in verse 11, the confirmation of this promise of offspring. God says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, multiply. We've seen this over and over, this blessing of, of fruitfulness. And so this is a confirmation of blessing, of the blessing that Isaac even bestowed upon Jacob. When Isaac sent him to Padan Aram, back in chapter 28, Isaac said, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And here God is confirming that blessing. God is the one who is able to bring this to pass, who is able to bring the promise of offspring to pass. So while Jacob already has a quiver full of children, at this point he has at least 11 sons and one daughter, if not more daughters. 
but one that we know of. But this promise, this promise of fruitfulness, this promise of being a nation and a company of nations is more than just his children that he has in his home. This is essentially the same promise that God made to Abraham back in chapter 17. God told Abraham, I will make you into nations and kings shall come forth from you. And that is what the almighty God tells Jacob. A company, I'm sorry, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Kings, kings shall come from your own body. And while this promise of kings most certainly points to the kings of Israel and Judah, this promise of kings ultimately culminates in Christ Jesus, the King of kings. Our family, we've been reading through First and Second Kings after dinner. And one thing that we're reminded of over and over, because there's not a lot of good kings in there, a lot of bad kings And as we're reminded, as we see these bad kings over and over and over, we're reminded that the king we need is not a king of this world. The king we need is not a king who comes to build an earthly kingdom. He's the king who holds all authority over every earthly kingdom. The king we need will not lead his people astray. All throughout the book of the book of Kings, the first and second Kings, we see the king leads the people to sin. Yes, the people are responsible for their sin, but this king's done more wickedness and led the people astray. The king we need is not one who will lead his people astray. He will not use his people for selfish ambitions. The king we need is King Jesus, who rules his people like a gentle shepherd but protects us like a lion protects his young. And this king will be born according to the flesh from the people of Jacob. God says here that kings shall come from your own body and kings will, and ultimately those kings will find their culmination in Jesus Christ who will be born according to the flesh, born from the people of Jacob. But Jesus will not come initially as the mighty warrior king who will destroy earthly strongholds. During his first coming, he came to destroy something much greater than earthly strongholds. He came to defeat sin and death. He came to set the captives free, therefore bringing true blessing to the nations. Some of our children are working through this question right now. Why do you need Christ as a king? Because I am weak and helpless. We're not strong men who submit to him. We're weak and helpless peasants who come to him begging for mercy. So in this promise of kings found in verse 11, we have a glimpse of Christ the king. Moving on to verse 12. We have one more promise, and it's the promise of land. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So this promise of land is made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to their offspring. This is where Jacob's offspring will live. They'll return here after 40 years in Egypt, 
I'm sorry, 400 years in Egypt. It will be here that the ultimate fulfillment of Jacob's offspring will be born in this place, in this land. It is here where Jesus Christ will be born according to the flesh. Jesus is the true Israel. He will embody all that Israel was called to be. He will fulfill all the promises made to Israel. So as we think about the covenant promises that have been confirmed here, we're reminded that at this point in time, in the life of Jacob, in the book of Genesis, God has not yet fulfilled his promises. But as we know, living on this side of the cross, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's why along with Jacob, we can look back at past providences and be encouraged that God will fulfill all his promises. He's not given us any reason to doubt that he will not do as he says he will do. The reason that you and I doubt him is because you and I want him to do what we think he should do. He's not doing what I want him to do because I think that God needs to act in this way and do this thing. When God has told us he will do all that he says he will do. Look to his word. Everything that God says, every promise that God makes will come to pass because he has said so. And he's given us no reason to doubt that. He has given us no reason to think otherwise. He has not let you down for one moment. Yeah, you may have let yourself down or others might have let you down, however you want to speak to that, but God himself will never let you down. And we've been reminded of that all throughout the book of Genesis. God is able. God is willing. He tells Jacob here, I am God Almighty. There's nothing that can stay his hand. All might, that is God. This almighty God is faithful. He directs the world and all that is in it to bring to pass that which he desires. Therefore, the almighty God is the only proper object of our worship. That is why Jacob is right when he says, put away the foreign gods. Those are foolish things. I mean, these are idols. These are handmade images. Put those away because the only proper object of our worship is the almighty God who is faithful. And that's what Jacob does. He worships God. When he comes back to Bethel, he worships God. He builds that altar. He goes up after God's appearance to him. In verse 14, we see he sets up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and he poured oil on it. He commemorates this place and makes an offering to the Lord. This drink offering signifies worship, not some sort of building another idol. That's not the idea. This this signifies worship. One commentator notes the added dimension of the drink offering underscores the nature of Jacob's actions as acts of worship. Drink offerings throughout the entire ancient Near East were for purposes of worship. So Jacob is worshiping the one true God, the only one who is worthy of our worship. And after he makes this offering here, we're reminded of the name of the place. In verse 15, Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The almighty God has spoken and he's confirmed his promises to Jacob. 
So that brings us to the end of this chapter. This is the capstone of Jacob's journey out of and back into the promised land. As Jacob was leaving Canaan, God made a promise to him. And now that he has returned to Canaan, God confirms all the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we see Jacob worship. He worships God knowing that these promises have not yet been fulfilled. Knowing that there is still much to do. But Jacob has no no reason to doubt God's reliability. What God says will come to pass, for he will not lie. And he is almighty. So as we think about Jacob... It's pretty amazing to see the work that God has done in his life. God has been with him, but God is transforming him. When Jacob left, the first time he came to Bethel in chapter 28, we see Jacob leaving Canaan as a deceiver on the run. He had nothing to his name besides the staff in his hand. And now he comes back to Canaan, a new man. He has material wealth and a sizable family, yes, But even if you took all that away, Jacob would still be a wealthy man because now he has God. Prior to this, Jacob was a man of the world, seeking to get ahead, seeking nothing but that which would benefit him. He didn't care about anyone but himself. He used people for his own advantage. So when he left, that's the man we saw. That's the man that God said, I will be with you and will bring you back here to this land. But he didn't come back that same man. God did not leave him as he was. God did not leave him to himself. God brings him back, but God brings him back a transformed man. A man who has endured much. A man who has endured much suffering, but through it all, his faith has grown. In a way, Jacob illustrates 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I mean, think about it. 20 years with his, with his father-in-law deceiving him, taking advantage of him on more than one occasion, and then also his father-in-law wanting to, wanting to well, catch up to him and possibly do him harm, possibly kill him. Esau, yes, it was self-inflicted because Jacob's the one who brought this on, but Esau wanting to kill him or wanting to meet up again and Jacob thinking that Esau wants to kill him. So he's been grieved by various trials. But listen to the rest of Peter. So that by, or so that the testedness of, I'm sorry, let me, let me back up and read this again. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The genuineness of his faith has been tested by fire. And what do we see him doing? Worshiping and praising God. God has brought Jacob a long way. His transformation has been slow and gradual. When we step back and look at the last 20 plus years of his life, what a difference we see. He left on the run and now that he has returned, we see a man whose life matches his profession, matches the one whom he worships. 
He's far from perfect, but his life is characterized by faith and obedience. And this is one of the defining marks of God's people. As we learn from Scripture, the one who belongs to the household of God is characterized by faith and obedience. As the prophet Habakkuk declared, the righteous shall live by faith. To live by faith means to trust God and his promises. Therefore, to live by faith means to obey God's commands to walk in his ways. We walk obediently by faith. We trust in God's goodness and his wisdom. Faithful obedience hears the word of God and goes forward, not looking back, but presses onward, not getting hindered by the past, by the things we've done in the past, things that have happened to us in the past, but pressing on, repenting and moving along, pressing on, following God. That is what faithful obedience looks like. For some of you, faithful obedience has cost you much. For others, it still might cost you much. Might cost you friends, family, might even cost you your job. But as we know, God is worth it. You do not want to stand before God and hear him say, depart from me for I never knew you. You do not want to be denied by God because you denied him here on this earth. As Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So returning to the life of Jacob, ever since he left Laban's household, we've seen him walking in faithful obedience. He's obeyed God's commands and he's followed him. Furthermore, we see Jacob cast away the foreign gods from his household. And this reminds us as well that those who belong to the household of God, those who belong to the household of God, there's, for you, there's no room for partial allegiance. When it comes to the household of God, there's no such thing as one foot in and one foot out. You cannot love God in this world You cannot serve two masters. For as Jesus says, you will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't have it both ways. No such thing as a partial follower of Christ. You can't say you love Jesus here on Sunday and then go and seek to attain all the world, all that it has for you apart from Christ and, and, and do it in ungodly ways every other, the, every other day and say, you know what, I love Jesus today, but then I live six days following myself, following the world. There's no such thing as partial obedience. You cannot say you love Jesus and refuse him. You cannot say you love Jesus and not hunger and thirst for him. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. What you desire most tells you much about your heart. But as we see here with Jacob, he's a worshiper of God, not of God plus the world, for that would be a contradiction. You cannot say God is worthy of all worship and then worship another. Jacob worships God alone. 
There's no room for false gods, for God alone is worthy of our worship and allegiance. So Jacob's life, along with the life of the believer, the one who belongs to the household of God, is characterized by faithful obedience and total devotion to the one true God. And one final characteristic that I want to draw out from this passage, from the life of Jacob, is his love for others, especially those in his household. We might be saying, well, how does he exemplify love? Well, Jacob calls his household to put away their foreign gods. He could have remained silent. He could have let them remain in their sin. But he didn't. He cared for them. And this reminds us that the Christian loves others, especially those of our own household. By household, I'm referring both to our homes and to the church. I mean, think about it. What would it say to the world if you poured out your life for your neighbor yet neglected those in your own home? What would it say to the world if you poured out your life for your neighbor yet neglected your spouse and your children? And what would it say to the world if you served everyone outside the church yet ignored those within the church? Jesus says to his disciples, by this, will you, I'm sorry, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. So by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This does not negate the love we ought to have for our neighbor, but it emphasizes the love we have for one another. If you do not love the brethren, you do not love one another, what does that say about your heart? The Apostle John writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So coming back to Jacob, we have a transformed man, a man walking by faithful obedience Worshiping God alone and loving and caring for those within his own household. Now, I could conclude here and tell you, hey, go and live like Jacob, but I'd be selling you a false bill of goods. Jacob's transformation didn't happen just because he modeled after his father or after his grandfather. Jacob's transformation didn't happen because he exercised more self-discipline as he grew older. Jacob's transformation happened Because the glory of God was revealed to him. No one is transformed by saying, I'm going to do better. No one is transformed by even focusing on the sin that we need to be delivered from. As we read earlier, as Tommy read earlier, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another by beholding the glory of the Lord. It's when the sinner sees God as he is that the sinner begins to see himself properly. When we see God's might, we see his power, and we recognize there is none other than this great God, we begin to see that everything we cling to in this world is futile. The things of this world will pass away. And we're reminded of that in this passage this morning. We saw the death of Deborah, which reminds us that everything in this world is passing away. All of us and everything else in it, 
Therefore, we must look to one who does not pass away, one whose glory is unfading. We must look to him, the almighty God. And as we look to him, we see in scripture that he calls us. He invites us to call out to him for mercy. And as we're reminded here, Jacob told us, this is the God who answers me. God is a God who hears. God heard Jacob. God answered him. Therefore, we can take heart when we hear this promise found in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Therefore, we can call upon him with confidence that he will hear us and that he will do as he says he will do. And so for the young people in our midst, you can call on him and he will hear you. You don't have to be a certain age to call upon the name of the Lord. For those who are older in our midst, You can call on him and he will hear you. No matter how much wrong you've done in your life, he will hear you when you call upon his name. You see, oftentimes we try to change the externals. We try to look good. But as one pastor said, the change each human needs, regardless of how we may outwardly appear, is so radical so near the root of us that only God can do it. That is why we call upon the name of the Lord, for we cannot save ourselves. We cannot transform ourselves. Only he can save us and put us on the path of faithful obedience. He alone can turn sinners into saints. And so for those of you who are walking in faithful obedience, who are devoted to the Lord alone, who do love the members of your household and the members of the household of God, I encourage you to stay the course, to never give up. Continue looking to the Lord for you know that there's nothing sweeter than Jesus Christ. There's nothing sweeter than the communion we have with God and with his people. Behold Christ. Behold his glory. So I exhort you to stay the course, to be faithful to the end, to to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, to be so enraptured by his glory that's revealed to us in scripture. Look to him. For this is how we fight sin and despondency. By beholding his eternal glory, a glory which is beyond all comparison, a glory that transcends anything this world has to offer. So I call everyone to behold the glory of Christ. Behold the God of eternal glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Christ by the power of your spirit and I pray that your spirit would stir up within us hearts that would hunger for you, eyes that would behold your glory through your word, ears that would hear your word and follow you. 
Help us to not be distracted by this world. You know that when we leave here, there's going to be so many things fighting for our attention. But yet, we need you. Because we're weak and helpless. We need a king who is not like the kings of this world. We need the king of glory. So help us, O God, we pray. In the name of Jesus.